So we think about the glory of Transfiguration Sunday today. Uh, one of the things that I want you to think about is the transition between the glory of this world and, or the difference between the glory of this world and the glory which Jesus offers, the glory that humans pursue, which the glory that can only be received by way of a gift. And our reading today will come from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and here we read the following. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Make a quick note here before uh, we even jump into dissecting the text. And the note is simply this, that if you've if you listen to this account and it sounds kind of familiar, but also doesn't sound completely accurate to you, part of the issue might be that you're remembering a different account. So there is a strikingly similar account that is recorded for us in John chapter 12, uh, which is believed to be the day before Palm Sunday. And it's the anointing of Jesus by a woman named Mary of Bethany. And part of the issue then is that a lot of scholars for literally 2,000 years now don't know exactly to what degree the relationship is between Mary of Bethany and a woman that we refer to as Mary Magdalene and the woman who is seen here as the quote-unquote sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. Um, I, I literally read somebody's like doctoral uh, dissertation on this earlier this week, and I, at the end of it, still don't know exactly what to think. And all I'm saying is there is some confusion out there, uh, partially because there's some early church fathers, Tertullian and uh, Pope Gregory I in the 500s, who both came down pretty hard on what this is. All I'm saying is don't get confused, okay? Uh, we don't know exactly if this woman is in relation to those other women, but what we do know is she is a woman of the city who is sinful, and that is what she is characterized here, okay? 
And so let's launch into the text. First of all, you get Jesus uh, receiving an invite to a party from a, a Pharisee named Simon. Now, that might seem a little bit odd to us, especially when we see that throughout the rest of the Gospels, the Pharisees are constantly trying to trip Jesus up and set traps for Jesus. And so why on earth would one of them be inviting him over to a dinner party, right? Um, well, it could be a couple of different reasons. Remember, within the Pharisees themselves, there's a spectrum. And so, for instance, in John chapter 3, we get this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is genuinely curious about who Jesus is and who, if he is, who he says he is. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night to try to find out and ask some questions. Now, uh, he, he's afraid of his peers, so he does it at night. But nonetheless, he's genuinely curious. So that might be Simon's deal. We also know that from the Greek classical period onwards, uh, it was really popular to have like marquee dinner guests, like celebrity guests come and teach moral instruction and tell stories at your dinner parties. And that was an indicator of who throws the best parties in towns, uh, who was the biggest celebrity that you could come and get to speak at your party. Maybe Simon is doing that. It's possible. Um, we don't know for sure then. So it could be is genuinely curious. It could be that Simon is trying to set a trap to discredit Jesus' ministry. And it could be that Simon is just trying to have a celebrity speaker so that he looks like he's throwing the best parties. What's maybe just as important or more important than the reason why Simon, the Pharisee, is inviting him over is the reason that Jesus accepts. So that's a little unusual. Why is Jesus even bothering going to this party? Now, you know, I... I think it's really fascinating in a day and age where we have a lot of people who refuse big invitations to the White House, to an inauguration, to an awards ceremony because of moral outrage and they uh, kind of self-righteously and disgustedly want to stay away from it. See, that Jesus doesn't discriminate who he's willing to go and eat with and hang out with. So he goes and he eats with the Pharisees and the tax collectors, I'm sorry, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, but he also goes and he eats at the home of a Pharisee, okay? Another interesting aspect of the account, of course, is the unwelcomed guest here. So who is this? At that particular time, uh, dinner parties obviously operate a little bit different according to culture and the fact that, um, you know, at that time, pretty much anybody from the streets would be welcomed to come in. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody sat down and ate at the meal, but everybody was given the opportunity to come in and listen to some sort of celebrity speaker. So that was unusual. Also, they didn't eat at large dinner tables like people typically do uh, today. You know, with a, you have a thousand different forks and spoons for every particular course and that sort of thing. No, they didn't have heads of tables. They probably had cushions or couches that they reclined on sitting around a central table and they were propped up and their heads were towards the center and their feet were outwards. And um, this would explain how if dinner guests are invited, everybody is allowed to enter in and you have a woman who is of sort of uh, ill social status who finds her way in because they're allowed to come in and simply listen. And this woman, who exactly is she, the one who anoints Jesus' feet? Well, all she's labeled as, she's not given a name. She's labeled as a woman of the city who is sinful. Now, you might say, why would Luke record her as being sinful? Because aren't we all sinful? Well, yes, but the specific word that's used here in Greek is a word that means somebody who is ostracized in society because they're sinful. 
In other words, this woman clearly had, so just use that term, a woman of the city who is sinful, almost every Bible commentator will tell you almost invariably this 98% were positive was a prostitute. Um, Or at very least a woman who was notorious for some kind of sexual deviancy. And what is she doing here? Well, you see her reaction. When she sees Jesus, she's overwhelmed by emotion. And so she, at Jesus' feet, she cries out and she's going to anoint him with oil. But the first thing is, there's just tears flowing out of her face. And they fall down on Jesus' feet and she's, she's wetting his feet and cleaning his feet. And then she dries the feet with her hair. And then she... Uh, you know, kisses his feet and pours perfume on his feet. And it's, it's not sexual, but it's undoubtedly and unquestionably be provocative. And so what is happening? Well, she's anointing Jesus. It means she must have heard Jesus teach earlier. In fact, if you looked at a harmony of the gospel accounts, one of the things that you would find is that probably some of the last things that Jesus said before this event was some public teaching where he said things like, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Um, In other words, in me, you find rest. In me, you find forgiveness. In me alone, I will give you my glory. And the woman is so overtaken by this that after she's heard that gospel message, she comes to Jesus and can barely compose herself. Now, at that particular time, again, somewhat interesting. Typically, a good host, especially for a celebrity guest, would have set out some water. And you set out some water so that people can wash their feet. And you wash your feet because everybody wears sandals and everybody travels on dusty roads. Okay, and so you you set out some water so people can wash their feet and find some, you know, cleansing for their aching feet and all that kind of stuff. Simon the Pharisee doesn't do any of that. This woman, however, takes the posture of something that goes beyond a servant, and she's cleansing Jesus' feet, his dirty feet. She is soothing Jesus' aching feet, and she's anointing what might even be at this point, you know, kind of smelly feet. And in order to do so, she cracks this alabaster, this cream-colored stone jar that's filled with perfume and pours it. Why is she so emotional, and why is she giving him a gift that's so expensive, It might be her life savings. Well, we'll come back to that. But for now, how does Simon the Pharisee react to that? He's disgusted. Um, He's not disgusted because somebody's touching somebody's gross feet or anything. He's disgusted because somebody who presumes to be a prophet is in contact with a sinful woman or a woman that is, quote unquote, so sinful. And interestingly enough, to Simon, that actually discredits Jesus' ministry because if he really was a prophet, he wouldn't be in contact with such a sinner or allow that to happen. But actually, Jesus proves that he is a prophet by reading Simon's mind. And essentially, he knows how upset Simon is and how disgusted Simon is by all of this. And so what he does is he says, okay, Simon, here's why I was called to be here in the first place. I'm a master storyteller and a celebrity storyteller. You know that, so uh, why don't I go ahead and share a story? And he tells him a parable, and it's a really actually pretty simple parable. The parable is there are two individuals who both owe a great deal of debt. One of them owns 50 denarii, and one of them owns 500 denarii. A denarius is something like a laborer's day wage. And um, 
you know, so maybe that is 50 denarii would be two months wages and 500 denarii would be 500 uh, days. So like it's two months worth of salary and two years worth of salary, but they both owe a great amount that they can't pay back. And for that, because you can't pay back your debts, they deserve to be punished. They deserve to be imprisoned. And uh, they're both in the exact same functional status. But the moneylender is compassionate and merciful and gracious and willingly cancels their debt, both of their debts. And okay, so Jesus ends the story and he turns to Simon. He says, which of them do you think will be more grateful to the moneylender? And in fact, he doesn't use the word grateful because in Hebrew, there isn't technically the same, uh, quite a technical term for gratitude. And so specifically what he says is which of those individuals will love him more? He's asking which of the indebted people will be more grateful to the moneylender for canceling the debt. And Simon got it. The one who would appreciate it more seemingly would be the one who had more debt canceled. And the point of the parable, honestly, is genius. Why? Because you have two people who owe different debts, but they both owe a great amount of debt. And they cannot pay their debt, and they deserve to be punished for their indebtedness. But the money lender, the master, is so gracious that he cancels both of their debts. And so functionally, again, they're in the exact same type of position, irrespective of how much they owed. It's like one of my favorite preaching illustrations on this is you might pass away in your sleep peacefully, or you might get run over by a Mack truck on the highway. One of those is certainly a lot messier, but one of those is not more dead than the other one. They're both equally dead. They both have the same identical status. And Jesus, at the end of this parable, turns to Simon and says, okay, do you get it? Because very clearly the deal is the the woman in the parable is the servant that owes 500 denarii. And Simon is the person in the parable who owes 50 denarii. And the point is Jesus came just as much for Simon as he did for this woman to go to the cross and cancel their debts. But see, Simon hadn't shown Jesus any love or any service or any thoughtfulness. And the evidence was he wasn't grateful to Jesus. He didn't love Jesus. See, this woman was bending over backwards to show how much She loved Jesus, how grateful she was to him. Simon didn't show any of that. This woman's love showed that she proved she had already received forgiveness. Remember, it was before this account. Before this account, she had heard Jesus teach and preach his gospel message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And this woman, at the end of the account, Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And notice he uses past tense here. Your faith has saved you. It's done. It's finished. It's a past fact. That means you can go in peace. With Simon's religion, there was no past tense. In Simon's religion, you're constantly striving, you're constantly obeying, you're constantly working for God's love and acceptance and forgiveness and blessing. There's no past tense. Simon can never go in peace, but the gospel means that the moment you, in faith, lay claim to the promises of Jesus Christ, your salvation is considered a past fact in God's sight. Everything that's necessary for your salvation has been accomplished. It is finished, and you can go and live in peace. 
See, okay, so the summary then, of course, is the woman repented of her sins. She turned to Jesus for forgiveness. She received word from Jesus that, in fact, her sins were forgiven. And number three, she proved that her life was one of salvation because she moved forward in love and gratitude and sacrificial devotion to Jesus. For the first time in her life, through him, she had found peace. Now, what does this mean? Let me give you two lessons for today. Number one, the difference between the amount of sin and an awareness of sin. Amount of sin and awareness of sin. There's this famous parable in Luke chapter 15. Actually, there's several of them, but the most famous of them is referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And unfortunately, it's referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And that is a man-made name that is given to it that Christians have used for centuries. That is a bad name. It's a misleading name because Jesus is teaching the parable to a bunch of Pharisees. And he starts out the parable, there is a man who had two sons. Okay? And therefore, you can call the parable whatever. You can call it the two lost sons, or you can call the parable uh, something about God's love. But you can't call it simply the lost son and expect that you're going to understand it accurately. And that comes because people for years have misinterpreted what the actual definition of sin is. That parable is just, or, just as much or more about the self-righteous, moralistic elder brother as it is about the lost, wayward, immoral younger brother. And you see something similar, a similar dynamic happening here. My guess is, for those of you who would be following along, like in your Bible right now, one of the things you'll see at the top of this section is it'll be called something like Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. In fact, that's what I used as the, the theme for the sermon today. And I did it intentionally to tell you that's not the right, that's not the right name for it. Why? Because this, this lesson is just as much or more about the guy who's named Simon, the guy whose name we actually find out in the parable. Um, in the story. This is just as much about a self-righteous, moralistic, legalistic, religious person as it is about a sinful woman who is outcast from society. And for that matter, in a sense, you know, everybody is religious. Both of these people are religious. The sinful woman, quote unquote, and uh, Simon the Pharisee, both of them are willing to listen to Jesus. Both of them are spiritual seekers in a sense. Both of them recognize that they're sinful in some capacity. It's not as though Simon thinks he's not sinful at all. It's just that he doesn't think he's sinful to the degree this woman is. That's interesting. As, as a pastor, you know, in doing counseling for many years, Sometimes I'll talk to people, usually who are lifelong Christians, and we'll talk about things like sin and grace and forgiveness and all that. And this is, they don't say this exactly because they know they're not supposed to say this, but the, the general tone and tenor and attitude that is projected is something along the lines of, yeah, I know I'm sinful and I know I'm forgiven. And what's your point? Like, what's, what's the big deal? What's your point? And there is like an indifference and almost like a boredom when it comes to spiritual matters. And oftentimes their life is characterized by a little bit of anger and uh, perhaps a little bit of restlessness. Now, other times I'll talk to people who almost struggle to articulate how grateful they are because they're so overwhelmed with gratitude for the grace that God has shown them in Jesus Christ. See, you know, see what that is? That's the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Um, in this parable, again, obviously just the summary is we have two people who owe debts, neither one can pay, both deserve punishment and imprisonment, and the money lender forgives the debts 
of both generously and undeservedly. Understandably, the one who has canceled greater debt might be a little bit more grateful, but very clearly they both have debt and both uh, deserve gratitude for what's been done for them. And again, in the story, clearly, Jesus is trying to suggest this sinful woman might owe the 500 denarii, but this, this Pharisee owes the 50 denarii. And see, the last statement that Jesus makes in the account very clearly suggests this parable is not primarily about how much sin exists in somebody's life, the amount of sin. This parable is about an awareness that you are sinful, an awareness of the debt that you owe, and an awareness of the grace of God to cancel whatever the amount of sin is that exists in your life. No one's doubting that the Pharisee committed fewer sins. Of course he committed fewer sins. And for that matter, the sins that he committed were less socially stigmatized. He was proud and he was condescending and he was passive aggressive and nobody gets thrown in jail for being passive aggressive. People get thrown in jail for being aggressive aggressive, not passive aggressive. The woman's sins were open. The woman's sins were public. The woman was shamed in this lifetime for her sins, but their status before God was exactly the same. The problem for Simon was that their status before God was the same. See, Simon thought he deserved better. Simon thought he deserved more. Simon thought he was above grace. And many people, and be careful about this, many people have a tendency to think of sin merely as a failure to obey rules. Some people, by way of different circumstances, uh, keep rules better than others. And for that matter, some people are keeping rules all the time, but never glorifying God. Sin is not simply breaking rules. That might be a manifestation of sin, but the sin underneath that sin, that's how moralists define sinning, breaking rules. The sin underneath all of those sins is the sin of trying to get out from underneath God. The sin of trying to be independent from God and highly moralistic people are doing that just as much as highly immoral people are doing that. And Jesus shows Simon that the true difference between Simon and this woman is not that she needed salvation more than he needed it. The difference was that she realized she needed salvation more than he realized it. The life of a believer versus a moralist is characterized by repentance, coming to Jesus overwhelmed with gratitude and worship for his amazing grace. Let me give you one other sign of a moralist just because I think, you know, I've struggled with this myself and I know many people who have said similar things, but I want you to see what's underneath this. I've also had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I, I realize what I did was wrong and I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. And that always sounds really noble, but you know what that actually means? Uh, essentially what it means is I don't want to be dependent on anybody else's charity. I don't want to be dependent on grace. I don't want to be that vulnerable. I should be more disciplined. I should be more moral. I should be smarter. And I'll get there if I beat myself up and I flog myself a little bit and I take that pound of flesh and purge the evil, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe get there. It always sounds kind of noble, but underneath what the person is saying is I hate being dependent on grace and I refuse it. And it's a kind of subtle, crafty, satanic re rejection of Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. 
Um, Simon is just blind to this woman's newfound status. He's blind to his own dependence on God's grace. All he was looking at was this woman's shameful past and her mistakes. And all Jesus was looking at is this woman's glorious future. And it's one of the reasons why I love the empty tomb as a symbol for Christianity. We often use the cross as a symbol for Christianity, and it's a good one. It's harder to put like an empty tomb on a necklace and stuff. But uh, the empty tomb is just as good of a symbol, maybe even better in some respects. Why? Because I I think it tells the difference between moralists and believers. Moralists, religious people are always looking for death. They're always grave digging up pasts. They're always looking to find failures and death and disgusting things and whatever. But God has moved on. He's not there anymore. You know, moralists are always grave digging, but believers are always living a resurrected new life. Now, let me get to the second, and we'll, we'll make it the last point here. An awareness of grace and a gratitude for grace. I am so inspired by this woman's courage to walk into a room full of people who she knows hate her and judge her. And yet she doesn't, she doesn't care. She doesn't care because the one opinion that actually matters totally affirms her. And so she's in this room where everybody despises her and she's got the courage. Why? Because as we mentioned, she had already heard Jesus' gospel message of forgiveness and new life and rest. And Jesus assures her at the end of this lesson publicly uh, of what? He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. It indicates It indicates an outpouring of emotion, a lavish gift, a vulnerable worship that are all not for forgiveness, but in response to the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has already given to her for her past mistakes. In other words, you know, this woman's, her work, um, the perfume gift, and her passion, the tears that she shows, they're not for her salvation. They're a result of her salvation. I think this woman was the only one in the room that day who probably understood the parable. She knew that what the moneylender did for those who were indebted in the parable was exactly what Jesus had come to do for her at the cross. And also understand this woman's unique position as a socially outcast whatever. Her whole life, guys had been using her Her whole life, guys had been taking from her. Her whole life, guys had been objectifying her. And here was the first guy that she ever met who wasn't trying to take something from her, but he had come to lay his life down for her. Rather than see her get hurt for her past mistakes, he would rather take hell in her place. And she knew no guy is ever going to love me like this. And that's what you need to know today too. I don't care if you're male or female. No human is ever going to love you like this. And that's why she responds with this extravagant expression of supreme commitment to Jesus. Now, what is the expression? This is just my final thought real quick. That little alabaster jar of perfume that's around her neck. That's interesting because so most uh, commentators will say it's a little jar of perfume that can be filled but can't be poured out. So it's, it's small, it's cream color, it's got a long stemmed neck and you'd wear it 
in part because, I mean, we still do this in some cultures today. We have soap and antiperspirant and showers. Um, that's one way of dealing with the stink of a human body. Another way to deal with the stink of a human body is to overwhelm it with a good stink. So you get rid of the bad stink by overpowering it with good stink, and you wear just tons of perfume, right? And in that culture where you don't have showers and stuff, that's maybe what you do. So this is the thing in life that like masks some of her otherwise grossness. That's what perfume does in that time. In the same way that, you know, Adam and Eve sow fig leaves to try to cover up their nakedness and their vulnerability. This is perhaps so expensive, it might be her entire life savings that she wears around her neck. This is the one thing in life that, remember, her whole life has been based on being attractive. It's been based on having allure. This is the thing that gives her some of that allure. This is the thing that is like the little power and the little control that she has over her destiny moving forward. And because of this jar, you can't just pour it out. It's either a a container like this, it's either broken or unbroken. It's broken or intact. And what she does is she cracks it and she pours it out over Jesus' feet. You know what that clearly means, right? This was the thing that I used to think gave me any amount of control over my future. You, Jesus, are the one that has given me an actual future of hope. And so I set everything else at your feet and I break it out and there's no looking back. It's a supreme commitment. Now, here I believe then is what Jesus is teaching you and me then today. What is that thing? That thing in your life that you think gives you some level of control. That thing that is your power, that thing that, the best thing that you have, what's in the alabaster jar that you carry around your neck in life? And what does it mean to smash it in order to worship at Jesus' feet? Because when you hear him say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, remember today that you can confidently, joyfully surrender everything at the foot of a master who surrendered everything himself at the cross for you. You can trust him. You can trust him because of what he did for your glory. Your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, whether we relate more to the woman whose life was characterized by mistakes or Simon the Pharisee whose life was characterized by self-righteous blindness, assuming that he was better than what he actually was, may our lives now be characterized more about you, the master who forgave all our debt and invested in our future glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.